Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Damien, you're up this week, so what are you bringing to the table today? Yeah, it's me. So today I've brought a piece from Harper's Bazaar that was written by uh, a woman named Kim Tran, who is a consultant, community organizer, and author. And her piece is called The Diversity and Inclusion Industry Has Lost Its Way. Um, And so in it, she talks about the evolution of the diversity, equity and inclusion industry. The shorthand of that, of course, is uh, the DEI industry and and her belief that DEI work is sort of at this crossroads moment in terms of where it needs to go in order to. I guess, like accomplish its true purpose or or aspirational goals Mm -hmm. and for it really to be helpful and effective for everyone. And, you know, through the course of the article, she also tries to address a couple of key questions related to this, which are why does DEI so often inhibit the real change for which many are calling? And the second question is, what would it mean to radically reimagine DEI? And so that's the article that I mentioned last week uh, Mm -hmm. that I was going to bring to the table. But Aaron actually found another piece that I'm really excited uh, to bring to the table for us to talk about as well, uh, because I think it it's it's certainly related to this topic and, and offers what I think is an incredible alternative to the typical DEI approach. So the piece is called Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Have Failed. How about belonging, dignity and justice instead? Um, And this piece was published back in February on the World Economic Forum's website, so you can find it there. And it was written by Ada Miriam Davis, who is a community and labor organizer and consultant and the founder and CEO of an organization called Decolonized Design, which I had not heard about until uh, reading this piece. So, um, uh, And for a little bit of context, as the title suggests, her piece really is all about Um, presenting this belonging, dignity, and justice model as a more effective way to address individual and institutional challenges um, in our workplaces. And so um, I'm excited uh, for us to talk about both of these articles as context for, I think, a a conversation that we want to have about DEI work uh, in general. So uh, first, my friend, thank you for finding that second article because it was great. Uh, Where do you want to start? Well, first, you're welcome. (laughs) Um, I'm glad I found the second article, too. Uh, I was reading the first one and really appreciated the critique that they were bringing, that the uh, the article was bringing. Um, But I also wanted to find some other voices to kind of add to it, Mm. right, Um, who are sort of critiquing and looking at things from a slightly different angle. Um, So I did what... um, you know, a lot of us will do when they want to find other things. And I, I did a little Googling. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this piece came up. Um, <laughs> so anyway, let's dive into these. Uh, I'm excited to talk about these articles because I think there is um, this common theme that runs through a lot of these uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that make them feel shallow, right? And I think yeah. they, they talk about this in the in the articles, um, and they name this. But I can remember sitting in a variety of sessions over the course of the last 
10 or so years and thinking about how we we were learning these concepts like you know implicit bias or microaggressions for example um, but keeping it like pretty superficial yeah. uh, we weren't pulling at the roots of where these things are coming from um right we we're giving names and, and definition to some some real things that happen um, but we weren't always spending the time and energy figuring out how to root that out of ourselves and our workplaces or naming the ways that our it's happening in the workplaces right yep. like um it, it was um yeah just it felt it felt shallow and i'm not talking about everything in, in this like sort of blanket sense that all of oh, these efforts are shallow of course um, but sometimes you know you're sitting in those rooms you're like well we could be doing a little bit more here so um yeah and I, I think i felt that a lot so um i th think that both of these critique that kind of shallowness in yep. DEI that sometimes happens um, and try to bring up some different pathways that we could take in diversity, equity, and inclusion that are more long-term um, embedded in organizations instead of like one-off, we're going to yes. hire a consultant and then, you know, check it off on our little list of things mm -hmm. to do. Um, and also cultural and like actual cultural change within uh, organizations um, instead of kind of lip service to trying to change culture and, and bring more people in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the old recycled shallow DEI training sessions. Uh, yeah. yeah. Diversity day, right? Di like this, <laughs> the office wrote an episode about this that uh, is super cringy. Yes. And also in some ways reflective of some of the things that, that we see happen. Y'all so, will recall that yeah. I watched all of the office and actually just the other day we <laughs> happened to watch, yeah. <laughs> rewatch that episode of all episodes. Yeah. Uh, super cringy. Yeah. Uh, but, but yes. Right. And, and I, and I agree. I've, that sounds very familiar to me um, for sure. And, you know, I think it's absolutely connected to, you know, some of the critiques of this work that's presented in these articles um, for for sure. So I'm excited to talk about that because I think, you know, you just brought that up. That's critiques of um, of this of these efforts. Um, and I'm sure a lot of folks listening can relate. Um, but before we go there, I actually want to first mention uh, one of the initial things that stood out to me, uh, and that was how both of these articles talked about DEI as an industry. And, and yeah. it's something that I guess I, you know, I, I obviously know that it's an industry, but I just, I don't know that I ever would have landed on that word and thought about it in the same, as an industry in the same way that I think of other industries. Um, and so the Harper's Bazaar piece in particular, I think, highlighted that the DEI industry is an $8 billion industry. Um, and that's billion with a B, y'all. Mm -hmm. um, and and that $8 billion is actually not even really accurate anymore. Um, yeah. And I say that because the Harper's Bazaar piece actually had uh, a link to an article from Time Magazine that referenced this study that was done by an MIT professor, I think, who estimated that $8 billion figure through some of, of his work. Um, but that study was done back in 2003. So I, I think it's safe to say that... Uh, you know, way more than $8 billion is being spent now, uh, especially given yeah. sort of everything that has happened in our society, right, and in our organizations. And and there's certainly way more people, countless more folks that are out here doing this work 18 years later, 18 years uh, yeah. since 2003. That actually kind of hurts a little bit. That study can vote. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I think in addition to the, the critiques of this work, you know, that 
that eight billion dollar figure stood out to me and and sort of made my jaw drop when I first yeah. read it. Um, but it but it certainly makes sense if you think about it, right? Like when you think about the history and how this industry came to be, you know, when you think about what's happening in our society and our world and in our workplaces in terms of inclusion and 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 social justice, you know, so I think that spending, you know, on this industry, you know, makes sense. Um, and as a funny aside, uh, you know, when I read some of the history that both of these pieces referenced about the DEI industry, um, and they took us back to sort of the 1960s, I definitely had this thought. I was like, oh man, Aaron is going to have something to say about this. So uh, I'm interested to hear yeah. your thoughts on that, if you have any. Um, indeed. <laughs> uh, as you predicted, I have some thoughts. Um, you know, they talk about it starting in the 60s and it's it was in the wake of some laws that were passed and executive orders i believe yep. um from the uh JFK administration um and then i think followed up by LBJ after yep. him so um the, these programs i think in general DEI work kind of uh, started with the ideas that we're going to do some really challenging work and pulling at the roots of racism and sexism and other forms of oppression um, all forms of oppression and um, you know in the wake of these new laws um, yep. right as, as a way to um, include more folks in the workplace um, and so instead it got watered down for compliance mm. efforts, right? Yeah. So it looks good for companies to say that they have these programs when they get sued. Um, and so they get to claim that they're trying. These are the things that we're doing to make sure things like this don't happen. Um, and so this is an aberration and it's not uh, part of a culture or part of a pattern. Um, and so I think these are points that I think both of these articles make and I appreciate them uh, because they name how this got started and how companies were able to water down the original intentions um, from people who are out uh, in the street and organizers and activists who are trying to make change. Um, and, you know, it originally coming from that kind of like place and then shifting into this like sanitized, watered down corporate version of of the work. Yeah. See, I knew you'd have some thoughts. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I agree. You know, and I and I, I definitely think that these pieces, you know, really did a good job in highlighting how, you know, highlighting that history for sure, but also highlighting how uh, the industry and its work were really sort of flawed from the beginning. Um, yeah, and 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 you just alluded to that, and you know, I think the other thing that these articles point out is that that's because more often than not the right questions weren't being asked mm -hmm. and folks weren't getting to, as you just mentioned, the root issues within companies and organizations, the root, um, the, the sort of embedded uh, problems um, yep. uh, within these organizations and, you know, social justice activists who were sort of, you know, the brain children of some of these um, experiences and this thinking around this work that we needed to do um, weren't actually involved in the framing and execution of DEI work for companies and organizations. Right. Right. Um, which which makes sense, and 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 we see that, uh, and we and so many of us see that in some of the the trainings and the work that we've all been through. So you know, if you don't have the right people engaged in the conversations and the planning for this work, you know, and you don't have investment at all levels of the organization, um, and you don't or aren't 
willing to challenge the status quo um, and and really want, I'm taking this from an art from one of the articles the white heteronormative dominant culture at mm-hmm. play in your organization um, you know and you don't engage in this work in ways that are beneficial to all of the members of your organization then there you go right yeah yeah um, exactly you you get to the place where you want to go right which is like I said earlier, watered down. Um, so I think, you know, companies and institutions who do this diversity, equity, and inclusion work and bring people in and, and do that stuff for the most part are primarily interested in small reforms. They don't want to dig deep. Yeah. Um, right. They don't want to disturb um, <laughs> the roots of their, of their company. Um, they don't want to know the full story about how the entire system that they've built themselves upon and the history that they may be resting upon is flawed mm-hmm. um, and racist and sexist and, and all of those things. Uh, and th- they don't want to have to critically rethink all of that. Um, so we get these watered down versions that are centered in bringing, you know, marginalized people, underrepresented folks into flawed systems rather than changing the systems themselves. Yes. Um, and so I, as an, as an aside and kind of illustration to this, I remember talking to somebody who was planning a new training, um, in this kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion realm. Uh, and they told this story about how they had hosted a microaggression session. Um, and, um, the student, the, the term became kind of a shorthand joke as like, um, it was applying that term to things that weren't microaggressions, oh, right? Wow. It's, um, you know, just saying like, oh, you just microaggressed me, like uh, that kind of thing, as, yeah. in this like kind of dismissive way, um, which I think is what can happen when we don't center the stories of how this discrimination, racism, anti-blackness, sexism, um, heterosexism, homophobia is all happening and operating in our surroundings, right? So when, when we're not actually focused on the issues and trying to dig deep into how these issues are real and prevalent in our organizations, whatever they might be, um, then, you know, things like this become a joke. Um, if we don't get deeper than the shallowness of simply naming concepts. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. I mean, it's not surprising at all. Uh, but it's, it's wild. And I, you know, I want to go back to something you said about sort of our, our organizations um, and this idea that entire systems themselves are sort of, you know, flawed, right? And they've been built up and they're flawed. And I think so much mm-hmm. of that has to do with how in, in countless organizations and institutions across this country, so much of, and this has changed over time, but so much of our leadership has been old white folks, right? Old white men, right? Who have built these systems and these processes and haven't adapted and figured out like who their employees are and who they're serving and how their policies and procedures and, and, and culture and, and ways in which they do business needs to change and be responsive to that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much (laughs) embedded in, in all of all the reasons why things haven't actually change and we get these watered down versions of these kinds of efforts. And yeah, I think a big piece of it is what you said. And there's also, you know, uh, strict hierarchy, which is Mm -hmm. adhered to, which is a cultural piece of whiteness. There's, um, a lot of that in also like sort of patriarchy as we talked before in the podcast. So there's, there are all these other pieces that are deeply embedded in the U S culturally that are therefore also deeply embedded in, 
you know, nonprofits, um, businesses, corporations, uh, institutions, they're embedded in all of these things that exist within society. And so it's hard to pull them out um, because you don't know, um, you don't know what you're going to get when you pull them out. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Right. You keep tugging at that thread and like, where is it, where is it going to go? So to speak is I think the fear. um, And I think it's right. We have to, we have to start pulling at those threads because otherwise we just get the shallow nonsense. That's, um, you know, it makes it look like you're doing something, but you're not, but you're absolutely not. Absolutely. Um, all right. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of the, the flaws and the, and the critiques of this work. So I, mm-hmm. I, I want to shift us and I want to talk about the belonging dignity and justice model from decolonized design, which was sort of the heart of, uh, the content in the World Economic Forum piece, yep. because I think this approach is a pretty remarkable one and has the potential to have significant impacts on our workplaces if we are truly committed to reimagining DEI in our spaces and in the work we do. So, you know, again, to name it, Ada Miriam Davis is the uh, person who wrote this piece and and she's the founder and CEO of Decolonized Design. Um And, you know, she really pointed out in this piece that, uh, as we've alluded to here, you know, so much of our current DEI efforts aren't effective. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to to quote her, she said, needless to say, this current DEI approach is woefully insufficient in addressing the individual and institutional challenges in workplaces to structurally address racism, ableism, sexism, dehumanization, and anti-blackness. We must equip people with the proper tools to dismantle, disrupt, and demand more within organizations. To get to this healthy work environment, we need a completely different approach. Yep. And we've talked about so much of that here today, right? You know. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to name a little bit about this belonging, dignity, and justice model as an alternative to DEI. And I, specifically, I want to share the definitions of these terms. So we have a shared understanding of them, right? And for particularly for everyone listening, especially if you haven't read the articles. Yeah. Uh, so belonging is one's physical, emotional, and psychological safety and the indescribable feeling of being welcome. Dignity is one of the most universal concepts to describe uh, the sacred nature of each individual's personhood. And then justice is the repairing and restoring of individuals. Um, And so that's the definition of those three terms, which I think are great. Um, And, you know, I think one of the most powerful features of this approach is that this BDJ process is relational in nature. Right. You know, she points out in this piece that I'm quoting her again. It begins with an experiential learning session intended to inspire metanoia, uh, which is an inner conversion, uh, build trust, grow collective consciousness, and create tension to move teams to action. Rather than a checklist or a series of transactional and performative changes, BDJ creates a climate and culture that allows everyone to reach their full potential and thrive. And that yep. speaks directly to what you just said, right? This mm-hmm. idea of this checklist, right? Or this, you know, series of, what did I say, trans- transactional or, or performative changes, right? right. That it, we need to go beyond that, right? And we need to go beyond these watered down sort of experiences, Um and so, I, you know, I, I, I loved that, right? I think this really is a powerful way to, to engage in this work. 
Um, and I think they've, they've seen some successes there, right? Like she right. does take some time in the, in the, in the piece to sort of brag a bit, if you will, uh, about what her company has in this, in this model has been able to do for organizations that they've worked with. Um, so I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of potential power in this approach. I can see its value. You know, I can see how it focuses on individual and collective humanities, which, you know, as I've said many times on this podcast is important to me and, and huge to me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I can see how it how it pushes organizations to address, you know, its toxic characteristics, right? And those white heteronormative values we've both talked about already. Um, so I, I, I just truly think that there's real value to this approach. And so, uh, again, I'm, I'm really grateful and glad that you, you found it and, and you brought it to us. And mm -hmm. I'm definitely curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on it. Yeah. I really appreciated it too. Um, which is, uh, I think why I shared it. I was like, well, this, this seems like a good, like, um, sort of partner piece to, mm -hmm. to what we we're already planning on reading. And so I wanted to, to bring it in as well to add to the conversation. Um, and I think, you know, to, to kind of, emphasize what you said i think the relational nature is super important because i think um that's one of the things that we don't necessarily name is that um relationships in white supremacy and capitalism are frequently like disposable yeah um right good point uh and so if we're emphasizing that we're challenging those bigger like sort of embedded and hidden cultural values um and it's not a checklist right as you said it's trying to create change in a culture in an organization that will lead to um, the kinds of organizations that they say they want to be, right? Like I think about all the statements that got released last uh, uh, summer, yes. summer 2020. Yeah. Um, of like, we're going to do all these things and, um, and this is, you know, this is who we want to be and, and all of those. And I think, um, I think this is one way maybe to get there. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are limitations of it. I haven't necessarily wrapped my mind around yet as it's still relatively new yeah, sure. uh, to me. Um, but yeah, I, I particularly appreciate this part about, um, they talk about internal operations and external operations that, yeah. that can happen as a result. Um, and so this quote from the internal operations piece, um, really, um, stood out to me as saying, uh, that valuing the lived experience, acknowledging past harms, addressing coded language, and repairing those most impacted by systems of oppression allows companies to earn the trust of their workforce, mm. which I think could be huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just earning the trust of your workforce, I think, is huge. Um, and there are so many ways that I think workforces across the world yep. um, have violated their employees trust over the course of the last year inside the pandemic. And, you know, even before that in different ways, right. Um, just thinking about some patterns that are emerging uh, for workers now too. But anyway, they also go on a name that an organization who is doing this work, this kind of work internally is also going to show up externally in a fundamentally different way. That's going to create um, a better, uh, community for the community that they are uh, operating in yep. and um, partnerships across that community and different ways um, there too, because they're actually challenging the, the notions of what it is to be, you know, this organization, this yeah. kind of organization and rethinking that and creating new ways of being that are hopefully founded in belonging. 
um, justice and dignity yeah. that are then helpful and impactful for the community around them. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And that, and that's, you can see how it's so closely related, right? Like if yep. you're doing this work and talking about belonging, dignity and justice internally, right. And if I'm looking at you as my colleague and we're engaged in this work and, and I, and I loved that quote, that quote, that, that quote that you read struck me too. when I read this piece about, mm -hmm. you know, valuing lived experience, acknowledging past harms, addressing coded language, you know, and repairing those systems of oppression uh, to earn the trust of, uh, you know, employees like that, I, I had to pause there too yeah. um, because that's powerful stuff, right? And if you can really take time because that takes time to do, right? To Absolutely. engage in that effort and to have real conversations and to do real work to do this and you do that internally, then certainly you can see how it would have an impact externally too, right? Like if mm -hmm. I can have this, if I allow myself the capacity and provide myself the capacity to do that internally, right? The It's, you know, an easy shift to see how that would happen for my my community, my outreach partners, the the customers in which I serve, right? Um, because yep. I'm a sort of more more open and have greater capacity for that for that humanity. Um, so I I I'm glad you spelled that out a little bit. I said yeah. she bragged a bit, but you know she that, she backed it up uh, absolutely for sure with this model. So yeah, there's so much about it that is that is fantastic. And so again, I'm. I'm glad we we found it. Yeah, I want to jump in too because you you talked about the the sort of time that it takes uh, yeah. to actually have these real conversations, and I think that's an important point because I don't think that people invest the time in it, right? Yeah. Like, we, you know, there are statements made, and then there's like um, a, an annual diversity day, so to speak, <laughs> um, yeah. where a consultant gets brought in and leads people through a training, and then offers some like sort of next steps for the organization to do maybe or you know however that person do, does it person or organization however they do it um and so but then there's no consistent like sort of follow-up and in, in investment of time yes. right and if you think about the resources that organizations have it's you know people time money is three huge ones yep. right um and so if you're not investing the time to do the work you know, your statement kind of rings hollow, right? right. Like you, you need to be engaged in the work truly, right? Yeah. Like you, you know, you come out last summer and say that black lives matter and you want to do a anti-racism work inside your company, then like you need to, to put in the time to do that as well. So, well, and I think what can be really scary about that as an organization is that sometimes the time has to trump other things, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you want to give your employees space and time to do this work, then it may mean that they may not be as productive for some other things right. because they need to be engaged in this work. And if this work is truly important to you that's and your okay. organization, right. that needs to be okay. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. that, I think that's, that's right. Like that's the prioritization huge. of yes. what, how, how you use, how you're using your resources, um, I, I think is super important here too to actually make a change and not just have like a you know a one-off day every year that, um, that checklist as you mentioned absolutely yeah. we did it check you know and right. keep on working now mm -hmm. right um great all right. Well, let's shift gears and talk about application mm -hmm. if we can. Uh, though I feel like almost everything we've talked about today is application work. Probably. Right? Yeah. Um, 
I think there's clearly so much applicability here. I mean, if you are a person who works in an environment with other people, it's very likely, like Aaron and I, that you've engaged in DEI trainings, uh, like mm-hmm. the ones that are mentioned in these articles and things we've talked about here today. Um, and if you've been able to take a step back and apply a critical lens to that, which is something that we've talked about here on the podcast before, you know, I, I, I know it's not a stretch at all to question how effective those trainings are, are, right. um, you know, for all the reasons we've talked about that these articles, you know, talked about and, and, and so much more. And so I think my thinking behind application, uh, is pretty simple. Um, you know, I really appreciated learning about this belonging, dignity, and justice model from decolonized design. And I think there's a lot of applicability of this model in our workplaces. You know, I really think it's a useful model for addressing many of the challenges we see in the workplace, you know, and for helping to make our workplaces more healthy and inviting and inclusive and effective. And so I think with all of that sort of in my mind, you know, I think one piece of application as a first step is that I would encourage folks to think about the DEI work and trainings that are currently happening in in their workplaces and to critically examine that and and what may need to change. You know, and I say that and I fully recognize that sometimes decisions about this work are happening outside of folks' sphere of influence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so if you aren't necessarily a decision maker or in a position that can influence how this work is done at the company or the unit or the department or the institutional level, um, you know, a better question may be, where is your sphere of influence and how yeah. might you be able to reimagine this work happening closer to where you are, uh, you know, and with the people you work with most closely? Um, and certainly if you are listening and are in a position of power, um, for one, thank you for listening. And we're certainly looking for sponsors. Uh, but I also <laughs> think, you know, learning more about decolonized design and their work and how it may be useful to your organization uh, would definitely be some good application of this for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that application is, is spot on. I think um, one of the things I think about is as you talk about how, what's your, what is your sphere of influence? Like how can you mm-hmm. make that happen around you is sort of us individually or personally, right? Like, so taking advantage of our own agency, to try to embrace and understand our own participation in whatever the training might be about, whether that's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, microaggressions and implicit bias and and trying to unpack those for ourselves as well and do our own kind of follow-up and setting aside time to do that Um, and and embracing the concepts in our day-to-day lives and and, and unpacking them, right? Um, I think, uh, as you mentioned, pushing back on how these sessions are, are run uh, and trying to embrace some more depth and, and get a little deeper is absolutely something I think should happen. And as you said, um, not everybody can do that. If you don't have the agency to do that, if you're not in a position to to make that happen, there's all kinds of reasons why somebody might not um, want to rock the boat there. Yeah, it's risky. Um, yeah, it can be risky. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think, uh, you know, for, for me, one of the ways to kind of work around that, I think, uh, is getting ourselves to get a, get a little deeper, get a little real, uh, with ourselves, uh, in these concepts and how we can apply them to our, our own day-to-day lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that self work is so important. Um, especially in the context of our own learning and growth, which is important to us here, Mm -hmm. obviously. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and our ability to be 
better comrades and uh, in relationship with one another. Right. Uh, for yep. sure. All right. So let's talk a little bit about homework. Uh, I have said this over and over and over again. I'm going <laughs> to say it again. I am definitely a fan of this belonging, dignity, and justice model uh, as an alternative to traditional DEI work and, and efforts. Um, and I certainly want to do more learning and reflecting about it. Um, and as you mentioned, I think, you know, we both didn't think too much about critiques, right. Or, or sort yeah. of limitations of it. So yeah, I definitely want to do more, more, more reflecting about this. And, um, but I still see it as, uh, a good way uh, to more effectively address the structural issues in our workplaces. Mm-hmm. And so one piece of homework for me, as I just mentioned, is to just sort of do more thinking about this um, since this was our first pass at this. Um, but I also want to do some more research into Ada Merriam Davis's work, who's the author of this um, and, and it's her organization. Um, you know, this morning I actually stumbled upon another piece that she wrote for the Stanford Social Innovation Review, um, and it's called Dignity is the Bedrock for Workplace Belonging. Mm. Um, and it just came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and I have not read it fully through yet, but on first glance, she's making the argument about the importance of working towards dignity affirmation in our workplaces. Um, And that concept sort of on its face sounds important, uh, you know, and and right up my alley. And and I think it's not just important work uh, for our work environments, um, but also in our everyday interactions, right? And sort of that self-work you alluded to, right? And certainly in our work for for social justice. So, you know, I definitely want to... um, read that piece in more depth and maybe other work, uh, that she's done uh, as homework for the week. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, for me, the homework is, is definitely trying to see how I can use this belonging dignity and justice model or some elements of it in the work that I'm currently doing and, and, um, try to get the work, make sure the work I'm currently doing with, um, uh, in education is digging deep, yeah, deeper maybe. Um, and, and I'm also curious about the article you just talked about as well um, and want to look into that. So uh, that'll be good. Uh, but I think the other homework here I think is I, I'm thinking about is connected to uh, critical thinking and or reflection, right, as okay. part of that self-work. Um, so Bell, Her- Bell Hooks wrote a book called Teaching Critical Thinking. Um, and then Stephen Brookfield wrote a book called Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher. Um, and so both of those, it's in the title, right, are focused on classroom teaching. Uh, <laughs> but there are lots of lessons here that I think translate beyond educators. Um, and they're relatively um, accessible and easy to find concepts online uh, through, you know, what, whatever search engine you prefer, uh, as well as... Um, you know, having, I, I think having words and concepts to back up what critical thinking and reflection actually mean to us uh, individually is super important as we continue to engage in learning and unlearning, not only personally, but in community with other people, whether that's at work or in your neighborhood or, um, you know, your place of worship or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those are, are uh, great suggestions there. That's good work. Um, So, yeah, I think that's some pretty good homework all around, if I say so myself. Yep. Uh, All right. So 
with that, Aaron is up next week. Uh, what are you bringing to the table in our next episode? Next week, I am bringing We Do This Till We Free Us hooray. by Miriam Kaba. Um, so we've mentioned this book a few times, hence Damien's hooray uh, just a second ago. Um as our own like kind of personal homework. Um, so I figured we should just we should just read it here and talk about it here. Yes. Um, it's a series of essays and interviews that focus on the prison industrial complex uh, and a vision for collective liberation. Uh, so the summary on Haymarket Books website has this quote uh, says, what if social transformation and liberation isn't about waiting for someone else to come along and save us? What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Maryam Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. Um, so all of that, right, just makes it makes makes it sound great. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to reading this. Can't wait. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a great conversation for us to have next week. Um, but we also wanted to share that after our Maryam Kaba episode, uh, we're going to take a couple weeks off uh, to rest a little bit and also to. Uh, work on some new things for interdependent study. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, I am excited to finally get to read Miriam Kaba's book. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about it. We've talked about it a few times uh, on the show here. And so uh, I'm excited to crack it open. Well, I guess, you know, <laughs> open it on my laptop. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I know it's going to be a good read. Uh, and we're certainly excited for our little mini break, but definitely can't wait to to get back to it. And I also want to mention that uh, that episode will be our 20th episode. It will be. Which is yeah. a pretty big deal. Should mm -hmm. I say here that you're going to put a little like a uh, air horn or something on it? Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll You'll see. see. If, if it if comes through in the mix. <laughs> if our editor remembers. Our yeah. editor is Aaron, everybody. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're excited about that. Uh, all right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. Uh, you know what we want you to do here. Please subscribe, leave a review and a rating, uh, share our podcast with the people in your life. Uh, and of course, follow us on social media. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.